This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. The reasons for writing a book are many. The way a book comes to fruition are equally diverse. We've worked with countless authors over the past 25 years. From each, we've learned that there is no right way to write a book. Personality, life circumstances, research, writing style, it's different for each author, which means the process of getting the book to print is different too. Today, Dave and I are going to share five stories of authors with whom we've worked. Some stories are fun, some are heart-wrenching, some send us into a state of post-publishing panic, but each story will reveal the human component as well as the complexity of the book writing process. We really want you to be encouraged as you listen to this and hopefully it will trigger some ideas for your own book writing journey. But before we get started, we're going to talk about an area in our life where we have made some progress this week. So I'll start, Dave. This week, we put a laundry system into place. Our laundry situation has been a disaster for years. We just throw our dirty clothes down the stairs to the basement, and then they just get all piled into this lump. And then I'm terrible at separating the laundry and putting the whites with the whites and the darks with the darks. And my husband is miffed by it. Yes, absolutely. I don't know if you're an organization guy, but my husband is. Our Tupperware drawer is so organized. We have Tupperwares stacked by shape and their lids stacked in the right way. You can open out a Tupperware drawer and everything coordinates. So he's an organization guy. So we have our laundry baskets lined up down by our washing machine and dryer, separated by colors and whites and hot and cold. It's great. I've never felt so organized in my life. So I feel like that's real progress. Now I may not mess up the wash every week. <laughs> That's amazing. So did you do that or did your husband do that or was it a combined effort? Well, my husband is really patient and he bites his tongue a lot about how dysfunctional I am when it comes to processes like that. And so I think he just had alluded to the fact that, you know, I don't check the pockets. I don't turn things in inside out like the socks and don't put the right things together in the washing machine. And so I went and I got the baskets and I said, we're going to fix this. You're going to train me how to do laundry the way you want laundry done. (laughs) Progress. It's also like personal growth. Like, oh yeah, I can learn to do that if I really wanted to. Right. Well, and I think it's just good for the marriage. You know, I'm, I'm doing something his way. <laughs> if it wasn't for him, I'd still be just throwing everything in the, in the wash together. <laughs> by the way, he is a really, really smart engineer, computer science engineer, by the way. Yep. He is smart and his mind works very differently than mine, which makes us a great pair. So what about you, Dave? Where did you make progress this week? I would say it happened in the last three or four hours. I just spent three hours with an executive coach. She is on my board. And, and so we exchange in a sense, swap uh, coaching services. I help her on her marketing and branding and, and also setting goals for her, her company, which is an executive coaching company. And then she does the same for me. So we sit together and she talks for about half the time. I talk for about half the time. And I just cannot tell you how 
wonderful that is. It's working on the business. And I think in writing, the, the equivalency would be working on structure and flow and kind of working on the book or working on the project. And this is the same in the sense that it's working on the business. It forces me to slow down. I have to ask questions like, how have I spent my time? And, you know, we have this many clients in this area and what are my goals for 2021? And it's really, really good. And so I, I would say I just made huge progress in my thinking for 2021. That's great. And so often we don't make space for that because we're so busy in the day-to-day grind of work. So what's your encouragement for people to take that half day like you did to actually do that reflection work and that kind of goal setting work? I just can't advocate more for it. It, 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 it is life-changing. And often my thinking going into it is like, you know, I don't have time for this. It's not going to change anything really, because I already know this stuff in my head, or I think I know it in my head, right? I would say you should do it with someone else. doesn't have to be an executive coach, but somebody else who is maybe a good thinker and someone who can ask you hard questions. But, oh my gosh, and you can do it for all areas of your life. We're doing it just in the area of business, but I think in spirituality or your spiritual life, your family life, maybe your writing life would be a big one, right? Your writing life is huge, right? So, I would say it's huge. And I think it, it, what it does is sets a vector for your, for your year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's huge progress. So after hearing you say that, I was thinking this year, I need to really get together with a friend who asks good mm-hmm. questions, is a great brainstormer, just to help me prioritize my goals for the year. So thank you for making some forward progress mm-hmm. so I can make some forward progress. That's what it's all about, right? Making progress. It's certainly, that's correct when it comes to writing. To help you all in your book writing progress, Dave and I, like I said earlier, want to share some stories of our experience with authors through the years. And we hope these are encouraging stories, funny stories, just insightful stories about what writing a book is really like. So let's start with you, Dave. Are there any authors that rise to the top of your mind? (laughs) One of the first ones that rises to the top for a lot of reasons. One is I just grew to love uh, the authors and it was authors meaning two authors, which made it very, very difficult in terms of the process. Now, with these authors, we helped them from day one. They said they wanted to write a book. Um, both of them were had doctorates. Uh, one was a, one part academician, one part practitioner. One of them who had a doctorate was the highest priced personal trainer in the city of Chicago. Wow. Yeah, I remember that. And it And it was because he worked with patients who other trainers would not work with. He had specialized in obese patients. And also people who had had paralyzing accidents was another one. So hard cases that typical physical trainers would just shy away from. The one story I remember him telling, I don't know if it ended up in the book, but it was the story of the guy who was like 600 pounds. And when he went to the meet him for the first time, he went to his big mansion. His person was a corporate executive and the corporation made him uh, get help because he couldn't fit in the corporate jet anymore. Right. Right. That was in the book. That's right. It was an amazing story. But anyway, this guy had lost 300 pounds because of this guy's work. It was an amazing story. Right. And when he first went to his house, he couldn't even make it to the front door, I think. And so 
the trainer's job was to get him to go to the mailbox each time he went for the first you know few months and built on that little moment of success time after time. And eventually, like you said, he lost 300 pounds, which was a huge amount of weight. I mean, I struggled to lose five pounds. Can you imagine losing 300 pounds? I cannot. And imagine how judgmental we are. If we saw a person walk down the street and that person's 300 pounds, the tendency for Americans, at least to be very judgmental of that, because we have this thin ideal, which is that was what she talked about, what she and he talked about. By the way, this was a couple. They were married. And and one of the concepts in the book was this problem with the thin ideal that we have in America. Imagine if you saw a 300-pound guy walking down the street. You might be very judgmental. Oh, look at that. The guy's lazy or he's can't stop eating. This guy just lost 300 pounds and you don't know that. This guy has way more discipline than you would ever have in a million years. Right. And you are judgmental of that person. Right. Going back to one of the primary themes of the book, it's really about redefining success. Our society, our culture has such a narrow definition of what success is in the weight world that we're not able to see progress as success. We only see this final version of perfection as success. And the point that she and um, he make throughout the book is that perfection is really, for one, unattainable. And the quest for it is tiring and defeating because you never actually reach it. And once you get even close to it, it never actually provides the satisfaction that you think it's going to provide. But there's so much more satisfaction that comes in the small successes on the journey. So I love that idea, not just for weight loss, but for every area of my life. Personally, I like to focus on on the journey and not necessarily the end goal. So I think it's a powerful metaphor um, theme for many areas of life. I loved the book and I loved working on the book because it was a it was like one of those big epic books that had had a big idea and her framework uh, for losing weight and her and it was a way of looking at your life differently. And it was really her. It was a husband and wife. It was her framework added in with his work with all these obese patients and people with disabilities through the years. It was such a powerful book to work on. And I was so proud to be part of that process. And what strikes me about that book is that it was research intense intensive. She comes, as you said, from an academic background. So she was used to really doing research and contextualizing it in this realm of other academic research. And I appreciated that. It was a lot of work, though, framing it in this big, expansive body of work that has been done on the topic of obesity, dieting, thin ideal. But that that research I think really added a layer of complexity and depth that it wouldn't have had if she had just put her idea out there because she was pointing to where the research had failed or how she was building on the ideas that have been proven, you know, in the past. So it it wasn't a research intensive book. And we talk a lot about research and how to incorporate it. And this one, the research was a little bit more at the top. Wouldn't you say, Dave? It was. In fact, it was published by a health publisher. And one of the challenges with books that are research intensive is that they become unreadable. 
And, and that happens when you have too much information and you haven't really thought through what's most important. And then you haven't translated that into the language of the reader, who's your audience. And so that was a challenge with that book. I think we navigated it pretty well, but at the end of the day, it was their book, not our book. And they had to make some of these judgments on how much to keep the research at the surface of the text. In other words, making sure you refer to every dead author who had contributed to it for the last hundred years, right? That's one, one mistake. And, and yet keep the reader reading. So it was a fun project. It was a hard project. Let me add something. I think the way that we navigated the book incorporating the research is that we offset it with a lot of personal stories, tons of personal stories, tons of human stories that brought the research to life or proved the dysfunction of the of the past research or even you know what has become commonplace in society and culture so I I think if you're going to have a research heavy book and you want it to be readable then you do have to put in equal amounts if not more stories and they were great storytellers I mean some of these stories that they would tell just would wrench your heart I mean people committing suicide and people feeling like failures and parents who force their children and isolate them. I mean, there were just so many stories that just pounded at your heart. One of the pieces of research that I remember that sticks in my mind was that study of, I think it was either medical students, students in, in medical school or residents, those who were out of medical school, how many of them mocked the patients that came to them who were obese. Right, right. And it's just heartbreaking, so heartbreaking. That shaming. And one of the call to actions in her book was for this fat shaming to end. But one way to achieve that, she argued, is for the media to embrace body diversity. And so this book was probably like seven years ago, maybe eight years ago. It's been, it's been close to a decade now. But ever since then, whenever I go into a store like Target and I see body diversity, I, you know, take a picture and I, yeah, I send it to her because there's just so much more body diversity in the media now than there was before. So I do think that since she wrote the book, we have made progress in that area, but fat shaming is still a real thing. And I think it, you know, you have to have your, um, your sensors up for it. So just in, Another thing with that book that I think maybe our audience would benefit from was that when you they went to publish the book, they went with a publisher who was a friend and not the most professional. And so the book packaging just did not reflect the sophistication of the content. And so this is something that I tell authors all the time that if you're going to be self-publishing a book, you really need to pay attention to the packaging as much as what is on the inside, because people will not pick up that book if it looks juvenile, if it looks simplistic. And what, what was unique about that is that it was a real publisher. It was just a really small publisher who was a friend of the author. And it, it was old world, uh, just, I mean, really paint the paper quality. I cannot say enough about packaging. And at some point, we'll do an episode on the math of, you know, of what it costs to self-publish and both the promotion of that and all that. But you do, I mean, at the end of the day, 
for someone like them, I was very, for someone like them, I was very disappointed yeah. in the actual final deliverable. But here's the takeaway from that. Remember, she got offered to do a presentation where? Harvard. Harvard. <laughs> so just a heads up, um, you're working on this book. I want to give you encouragement that the big thing isn't going to be selling billions of copies, right? The mass market doesn't exist anymore. But for her, that was a perfect invitation. I, I, it was just a great, it's a great story of a great book idea. I think it was great execution. Love the stories. Love what the opportunities were that were provided after that book was published. And maybe the, the takeaway was pay attention to the book packaging. Yeah, that's right. And just as a follow-up, we love these people, as Dave said at the beginning, and that's often what happens when you invite people into the writing process. You become close with those those people, and because you're sharing ideas and you're sharing stories, and it's really hard not to get close when you become a bit vulnerable. And that's just something to think of too: that you're going to develop unique relationships in the review and writing of your book. And if you have a circle of people and they're asking you those questions there will be a quasi intimacy, a form of intimacy. I think one of the things you and I've always struggled with when we've done these more intense projects is they're sharing their lives because we're the one asking questions, but we're not sharing anything of our lives. So there's this kind of a faux intimacy almost in some ways. But I, I will say back to this couple, it was just, it was a privilege to work on the book, love the idea, love them and believed in it from day one to day to the point it got published. The next author that I wanted to talk about was an elderly man who was a retired executive of an oil company. Very powerful man. He had immigrated here from South Africa and just worked his way up into this, this company and was very, very successful. And he had a very strong personality and he had lots of responsibility. He retired and he wanted to create a book, a legacy book, because he was an Orthodox Jew. He wanted to specifically pass on his Orthodox Judaism to his grandchildren and even his children who had strayed a bit from that. So this project is a little bit more intense because there was a little bit more intimacy because of the amount of time we had with him because we did a little bit of ghostwriting and that demanded a lot of interviewing. So we would meet almost weekly, sometimes at least two times a month in his home, this high rise in Chicago, and we would interview him for hours. But because he was retired, this was his meaning in life. It was a different kind of project. It was intense. It was intense. And it was intense on, a, on several different levels. So we ended up doing not just the ghostwriting, interviewing, book concept. We actually did the publishing for this project. What made it great was it was really great to hear about the Orthodox tradition. You learn all these different, uh, I'm not Jewish, so I didn't understand. There's such a range of Orthodox uh, Judaism, and there's a range of what, what rules that are kept, what rules aren't kept. One of the things that I thought was so interesting was that he was vulnerable in the middle of this book about an affair that he had with his sister's, no, with, with his wife's cousin, right? Right. His wife's cousin. So imagine this book and he wanted to tell the story 
And, and so it was really, really delicate as you're, if you're ghostwriting this and then he's seeing the draft and you're going back and forth, it was very, very delicate to tell this story without being, what's the word, salacious? Salacious, absolutely. Without being salacious and yet tell, he wanted the story to be told and it caused a divorce and it caught and part of it, the story was him leaving South Africa, moving to America and and leaving behind that other family. His children, right? His children. And then, and I think part of the reason for the book was trying to restore those relationships. I don't know how old he was when we worked with him. What was he, 72, 73? Yeah, 72. Something yep. like that. So it was a, one of those legacy books. A lot of high net worth families like to do these books, right? To tell the story of the entrepreneur. It's a very legitimate type of book. And these books are hard to write because if they're all in the first person, I, and they're just this narcissistic drivel, they're hard to write well. And this wasn't all that because I think his vulnerability made the book and gave the book a sense of readability. And we talk about memoirs and how they can't be a junk drawer, right? You have to pick out the right stories and there has to be a thread among the stories. And while I don't think there was one common thread, I think the thread was that he wanted to teach the most important life principles of his life that have gotten him to where he was today. So if it was just, um, if it's, you know, admitting your failure, if it's setting the bar a little bit higher for each um, area in your life for success, I mean, there were, there were certain lessons that he wanted to pass on. And so I think that may be the point of this, this segment is if you're writing a memoir, you can't put everything in there. You got to think through what do I really want to achieve in writing this? It is so tempting if you're working on a memoir yourself to make it a list of, of it's actually it's a list of information is what it ends up being. Or if, if it, the better version of that would be just a, a string of stories that are really tied together only by time, meaning this one happened first, this one happened second. So the challenge if you're writing a memoir and if you want to write a memoir is to think through what, it's not so much big idea or thesis, but there definitely is, what is the main theme and the story that I'm really telling and where's the tension in this? And I think he would say that his Orthodox Judaism was that thing that, kept him moving forward and his entire life. So I think that that was the thread. And what I thought was really good about the book is his, he is an Orthodox Jew. I think he's still alive. He is an Orthodox Jew and he applied that and tried to apply that in a practical way in his daily life. Absolutely. And I thought, you know what? I, I wish I was able to do that myself with my own faith. And so in that sense, our engagement with him was very inspirational to me. And I also think that it, as you said earlier, you learn a whole bunch from these, these engagements, right? You learned a lot about Judaism. I went to synagogue. I went to a synagogue. And then when I went to, you know, a meal after synagogue, and it was just, it, you're, you're immersed in this new culture that you are forced to learn new things and that can make you uncomfortable. But I think if you're writing the book yourself, even, I think you want to immerse mm -hmm. yourself in experiences and people's stories that may be a little bit uncomfortable, but get you closer to the truth of your narrative. All right. So let's talk about the book that we're working on now, Dave, you want to give a little background on that? So we're working with an author who has published two books previously with us. 
The first one was about his cancer. He's an executive. He's actually, he's an entrepreneur and he actually sold his business. He's very successful. He's about my age and I'm in my fifties and he had cancer. He had throat cancer, his first bout with cancer. And so the first one was basically how, in a sense, he came back from his cancer in, in religious language, we would call it that he was healed from this throat cancer. And, and just the journey of going through all the suffering and the, the w- wondering whether he would actually survive yet a really, really rare form of throat cancer. And then they thought that the actual cure would be to take out his uh, throat. His, what was his larynx? I forget. Yeah, yeah. And which would mean that he'd always have a, a box he'd have to have. You know, you've probably seen those in movies or people that have that can't talk. And so, or a voice box, I forget what you call it. But anyway, so long story, he ended up, surviving that cancer and it was just a great story a really a hopeful inspirational story so we came along after the book had been written and so we helped them editorially kind of shape it a little bit at the end and sharpen it up a little bit and then we actually published it ourselves then we did a second book with him on generosity so because he is so wealthy he has oh my gosh this guy one of the things that's very inspirational about some of these books is the work that they're doing that's shaping and transforming lives across the world. And, and so this book was called Releasing Generosity. So we worked with him on that project. And it was at that project, at the end of that project, actually at the start of the project, he learned that he was not, his cancer had come back, but in the form of lung cancer, or he may not survive it. One of the stories that I remember, and maybe you and I should both talk about this, but you and I were in Southern California. And we were at this restaurant and he had just, I think he had just taken his chemo and he was almost unconscious, but yet he was fierce. He, he said, no, I got to do the dinner. He talked through dinner and you could see that every word, every word required this super energy and just this fierceness to get out. You remember that? You remember that dinner? I do remember that. And I do remember thinking, I can't believe he's here because we had already spent a few hours with him before. And he had talked about how exhausted he was. I think he had just started some new chemotherapy treatment and he was having some side effects, but he did not complain about it. He got there. But yeah, every sentence that we got through, you could tell it was a pain to say it was a struggle. And he yeah, was, he's he's really such an example to me of perseverance with oh grace, right? And that's this last project that we're working on. It's part of his trilogy, he likes to say, is is about his walking through the, the valley of the shadow, which is, you know, he's in his final days. We think he's going to die within the next month or two. It's surprising us that he still is holding on, actually, because all of the treatments have failed and he's no longer... Um, doing any treatments to actively fight the cancer, which came back. And so this one is a compilation of blog posts that he had written over the past couple of years where he was really grappling what it means to suffer and be a believer in God. This, This common question is, how can there be a good God with so much suffering in the world? And they're just honest conversations and just something that I think you and I would probably open up about in our own writing if we were going through a similar situation. But just going back and forth with him and over the past few weeks, it's the same kind of humility and 
gentleness and strength through suffering that is manifest. So that's a real gift when you can enter into these kind of sacred moments with authors. In the last few weeks, we've received these emails and I, I sent him an email the other day. I said, hey, thinking of you, praying for you. I try not to say praying for you, but you know, I, I felt like, man, I was praying for him. So I, I said that and he replied, I'm struggling to breathe today because he's basically is going to, he'll be asphyxiated, right? That's how he's going to die with the lung cancer. Yeah. It's just horrible. And yet when he replies, there's so much energy yet in his emails he he replies instantly. He's so focused once he learned that he was going to die. Here's someone who in his belief system believes that God can heal and he's not being healed. He's dying. He has all this wealth. He's giving a lot of it away and yet he's still dying. So all those, all that noise that you have about is God good? Is there a God? All these religious and spirituality questions are in this book. It, it's just the most raw thing I think I've ever read. And, and yet going through this with him is one of the most inspirational I've ever had. It kind of goes back to the, to make this applicable to our audience, it really goes back to the why of writing the book. I think if you have a strong why for writing the book, then you'll, you'll have that same kind of passion, even in difficult circumstances for him he really wants to share a message of hope. And he, I think he's hanging on until this book is actually to print and is across the finish line, actually. I think he's passionate about that and he wants others to have the hope that he has. And so it's a real challenge, I think, to you as an author that you need to find the so what, the why. Why are you writing this book? And let that really move you forward and inspire you to keep pushing through, even in through difficult situations when it would be easy to stop altogether. Boy, that's so good. That is so good, Melissa. And I think there's two pieces to that. One is getting in touch with the why can be a real motivation to actually start writing and to continue to write, as you say, persist through the times in which, because our lives are all busy. I mean, nobody that we work with ever, either on the coaching side or on the more intense side, everybody has full-time jobs, right? With the exception of the one we just mentioned, right? Who's trying to manage meaning in his life, but that's a rare, rare thing. We're all doing, we got, we're totally at capacity and we're trying to write. And, and so being in touch with that why I think gives you the motivation and the ability to set aside time to do it. And that why is what makes your writing really, really powerful. Absolutely. It's what gives it depth, richness, voice, all of that. Absolutely. If you have no why and all you're doing is writing a book because you think it's going to help you build your business or do this or that, oh Lord, I quit. Well, what did Jennifer Olvera say last week about, about writing that really inspired you? Well, she said, what do you want to evoke in the reader? That was a question that just hit me so hard. Right, right. And I think that that goes back to, to the why. So the next author we want to talk about is professional consultant in the family business space. And he works with families on succession planning so that the family business continues beyond the second generation and even the third and fourth. And he did all of this research with these big name companies. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about that and figured out what the common thread was among those companies 
for their child being successful in the family business and taking over leadership. So it was really about how do they come out of the shadow of the family business and become credible in their own right to lead the family business. So this was just a really interesting project because there was so much just great research interviews with these, these family leaders. I mean, I think we had Tyson and Ferragamo. What were some of the others? Do you remember? Christy Hefner with Playboy. Uh, of course, I'd remember that. And, and another one was one of the leaders in the Wrigley family who owned the Cubs. So there was just so many great interviews with people that now we didn't interview those people. He had done all the research. But we, when we came into the project, we took all that research, helped create a thesis for the book, a structure for the book, and then worked with the author as he uh, edited and wrote the book. So, um, and it was published by Wiley. And so he had, a, he had a major traditional publisher for the book. What was interesting about that project to me was, in many ways, the story of credibility, which was the core idea of the book, is what do you need as a leader in a high net worth or really ultra high net worth family that is leading these businesses? How as a leader, do you build credibility with yourself? How do you build credibility with the employees who see you as just daddy's boy or daddy's girl who got the job because of your name? And how do I build credibility with outside stakeholders, right? It was really about internal and external credibility and how you, you, you nurture each. It was a great book and it was a great book idea. And I think one of the great stories from that project was after our work and after it had gotten published by Wiley, he was featured in all these publications. He hired a small PR firm that specialized in book publishing, which we, if you have the money, that's a great, uh, it's something you should do. And uh, there's the work that you need to do yourself, but there's a few or you know, few people who say, well, I'm going to spend X amount of money. I might spend five or 10 or 15 or 20 grand, whatever it is, to hire somebody to actually get this book out into the world. He did that and he had great success with that. The book was, I think, featured or he did an interview with this, I think it was the Financial Times. Yep. In the UK. Yep. And as a result of that book, he ended up landing a seat on the board of some major, major company. And it was a good example of what a book can do for you. A book can give you speaking engagements. It can give you additional writing opportunities. It can get you webinars and speaking engagements. And in his case, it ended up landing a really, really prestigious uh, board seat. And, and, uh, and he deserved it. It was, a, it was a great book. Right. Unless you're going to be like a Malcolm Gladwell or a professional copywriter like Jennifer, whom we interviewed in our last episode, you're probably not going to make your money off of one book, right? The book is just one small piece of the pie. And so you got to be looking for the other opportunities that the book will lead to, which often is speaking engagements, or in this case, it was a, a board seat, which is very lucrative. I always remind authors, remember your book is $19.95. Right. That's such a small price point. You need to now sell hundreds of thousands to make anything of any kind of significance. There are very few people who can write books only and sell so many books that they can live their wonderful life on a lodge on the side of a mountain in Colorado, right? <laughs> I really enjoyed the relationship with the author. I enjoyed the project. Both of us really enjoyed that project. 
I think so too. And I think ironically, what he was writing on is one thing that he was even searching for. I think we all deep down want credibility. And I think that writing a book often validates that credibility or gives us that credibility. All right, so let's move on to our fifth and final author. And I'm going to let you talk about this one because you worked with him most closely. I did a little bit of editing at the end, but you really helped with the development of the book. So this project was with someone who's actually been a quasi-mentor of mine. I would call him a friend. Uh, I would call him actually a really, really good friend. But he's older than I am, about 15 years. And I was actually really friends with his father and helped his father on a project years and years ago when I was back in magazine publishing. It was a book project that we worked on together. And this project, we didn't do any of the writing because this this guy's a really, really good writer. Um, I couldn't, you know, we didn't do any ghost writing. It was more helping him structure, thinking through the flow. And what made the book fun is because he had a very specific idea for the structure. And he said, Dave, this is not going, there's no flow here. These are a collection of my blogs. I'll write some, and I encouraged him to write some new essays or blog posts. They were really essays. He, he really writes and he's a classic essayist. And so we had collected, oh my gosh, 13, uh, it was like seven or eight years of blogs. So there's probably, there's 300, 400 blog entries that we looked through. So the process was sorting through them, trying to find the best. And when I talked about structure, he just pushed back so hard against structure. And (laughs) why do you think that is? Why did he push back so hard, especially since you're kind of the professional in this area of publishing? I think he pushed back because it wasn't the book that he envisioned. He had an idea for a book that would be a series of essays. And by the way, we added in He's a great photographer. Every so often we put a bunch of of his images in the book. Like every so often there'd be an image on the left-hand spread. And he wanted almost like it was almost a tabletop book, you know, like a table book. He was so particular about the packaging and for good reason. And it ended up being really, really a super book. The essays are unbelievable. But if you go through it, there's no real connection between each essay. Now, if you could say there's, I don't know how many there are in the book, maybe there's 30, 40 essays. There's probably four or five themes and I helped him think through that. And we based on, we basically selected the blog post based on which ones were the best, right? I remember that, I helped select them. And it was hard to select. And I remember the phrase that he came up with. He's so good. He had this phrase called car parts. And car parts referred to a blog that had one story, but it really wasn't a good essay. Okay. So that story is a car part. You like you go to the automobile parts, you know, a car has different parts yeah, yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah. It's a part. It's one piece of, one of the car. It doesn't make the car, right. You need all the parts to make the car run. And this is just one part. You see, it's a car part. And so what we did is, we had this, we had this, I remember we were in his conference room down in Texas and we laid everything out. We had them all written out and we had, we went through them one by one. It was really tedious. And we go up, oh, that's a car part. So we have the car part stack. And then we'd have the, yes, definitely. This is an essay that definitely goes in. And then the absolutely no. And then the maybes and then the car parts. So there's like four buckets that we put these in. So the process was really interesting. And as you think about structure, by the way, sometimes 
that's the best way to do it. Some people use sticky notes um, across a whiteboard. You can do it on a big conference table. Sometimes that's the best way to structure your book and think about that. Can I add something also? We were talking with an author recently about stories in an actual chapter. And I think you could use that car parts strategy when thinking about a chapter. Like, do you just have a car part? Like, is that story just a car part? Or do you need lots more car parts in that in that chapter to make a real chapter, right? Because I, her struggle was that she was just using one story and we're saying, that's a car part. You need some research, another car part, another story, another car part, some of your, your thinking, another car part, right? So I, I like that. I like that you need lots of car parts to make the car run. And that can work for chapters as well as overall book structure. Sometimes you have all you have is a car part and that's how you start a chapter. But if that's all you have in that chapter, that's a car part, it's not a chapter. Yeah, I love that. That's fresh. Yeah. So talk about how when you went to pitch the book to publishers, they didn't really bite. Can you talk a little bit about that and why? So this person is one of the most connected persons in his space and in his niche. We talk incessantly about the minimal viable audience. The mass market is dead. And so your book isn't going to sell billions because there is no mass market anymore. So you have to identify your minimal viable audience. I got that. I stole that phrase from Seth Godin, the genius, the great marketer, the best thinker on marketing and all, all things, I think, in many ways. So <laughs> if you think about your book promotion, you need to think about your minimal viable audience. Who is that person? Who is she? Who, you know, what do they think? What's their mindset? Where do they go? What do they read? Where could you promote the book? But anyway, for his minimal viable audience. He was, he was the dominant. Everybody knows who he is. And so I, we went to a traditional publisher. So I function like his agent on this project. We don't mm -hmm. do that typically, uh, simply because to be an agent, you have to have connections. And I have connections because of my past. Melissa, you have connections in your, uh, your space being uh, um, uh, with, with vintage. But that's not, that's not, we don't, we just don't do that. Right. So, and, and in the future we'll have, we'll interview agents and we'll do some interviewing of, you know, different people along the journey. But in this instance, I was doing the agenting. So we, there were three publishers, pitched them all. And when I went to build the proposal to pitch them, I, in talking with this author, he said, Dave, I'm, you know, I'm in my seventies. Um, I know the kind of book I want to write. I'm not interested in their feedback and I'm not giving them a marketing plan because they know should know. He didn't say it like this, but I mean, he has this regular blog to three to 5,000 people. He would have sold and he, he did sell by the way, more than what a publisher would have wanted. But anyway, I went to these three publishers and everyone to a, to a, everyone to a publisher said, no, where's your, where's your, uh, where's your marketing plan? <laughs> the takeaway here is, if you don't have a really good marketing plan, a business plan, a mini business plan in your proposal, you'll there's just no chance you'll even get a hearing with with a publisher. Right. Because that's what that's the first thing they look at. They don't look and go, "Oh my gosh, this idea is so good. This writing is so great." That's not how they think, right? They go, "Okay, how many books will we sell? And how many will the author sell? Because if the author can sell a lot, that means we'll get our money back." So 
they're not risk takers. They're not venture capital. They're bankers. They want to bank the money. And you know, a bank, you can't get a loan to save your life if you're a business owner at a bank, right? They want to, they, they have to have collateral. Well, it's the same as a publisher. So they all rejected him. <laughs> and one of them, in fact, I, I was working with the acquisitions editor and I said, Bob, I said, this guy is the most connected person that you've never heard of. Right. He took that to the sales team. By the way, it's not just your acquisitions editor who makes these decisions. There's an editorial review board. And part of that editorial review board are the marketing and sales folks. Well, the sales folks said, oh, you're right. We haven't heard of them. Because of that, we're not accepting your book. Wow. Wow. It's pretty black and white then for publishing. It's so black and white. Right. Oh, it's so black and white. So we need to talk more about this developing your business marketing plan as you write your book. And I think that's what our next episode is going to be on. But it's critical. It's mission critical to begin thinking about how you're going to market this book and to be developing your platform as you are writing and if you want to get it published by a traditional publisher. And even if, if you're going to self-publish, you can't just put it out into this deep, dark void. There has to be somebody there that might actually read it. You have the same problem. Whether or not you publish with a traditional publisher or whether you self-publish, you have the same problem. The problem isn't change. The problem is that who's going to buy your book? Besides your mom and your best friend and your aunt, right? <laughs> And most of those you're going to have to give books to because they're not even going to buy those books. Right. (laughs) And here's the other thing is most writers probably don't think like marketers and don't think about their platform. There's not how you're wired, right? That's okay. But it is something you can learn. It is. It's totally learnable. Just like you with your laundry and organizing your laundry. You can can learn. learn. (laughs) Yes, you can. You can learn and do and make progress. I love that. So let's turn to our words of the episode and close out the episode that way. I'm going to go first. I'm excited about this word. I learned it years ago, but it has never stuck in my mind because I've never used it. I've never actually read it in context. And that's why reading is so important because you see these words in context and suddenly they become part of your vocabulary. So my word is sartorial. And I learned it during the inauguration. If you all remember, Bernie Sanders was quite the new story with his Vermont wool mittens and their memes across the internet. Anyway, and so I read an article and it included a tweet by somebody. And the tweet said, Bernie with zero sartorial consideration, just full Vermont grandfather. So sartorial means or has to do with tailoring clothes and style of dress. And so basically they were saying he just was not caring at all about his appearance, his his dress in particular. So I, I love the word sartorial. I'm gonna try to use it. It's one of those words that I don't think the word actually matches what the meaning is. There are some words where you think, oh yeah, I can see how you know that relates. And I, it's just one of those where the root isn't really clear to me. Like, how does that relate to clothing? I'm sure there is some etymology to it, but it's something that I've never actually incorporated into my vocabulary. So sartorial, let's see if you can use it. So he, they're saying he was the opposite of sartorial. Yeah, he, had, he put no sartorial consideration into what he wore that day. That's a word. Like everybody else is wearing these very sophisticated coats and slacks and nice shoes, but not him. You know, he was sitting there like he was, you know, on the subway. 
Oh, that's great. That's a great word. Great, great word. So mine, I'm going to, I'm going to say is moxie. Oh, that's a good word. I like it. I like the way it sounds when you say it. Moxie. Moxie. So the story that triggered my thinking of that word, I was in Rochester um, this last week in Rochester, Minnesota. My brother and his wife lived there with their children. My brother is an oncologist at Mayo Clinic. And, and so we were hanging with them and, and his wife, Cynthia, tells the story that about a week ago, they had a blizzard. She was at the grocery store and they have a huge van. I mean, it's not even a conversion van. It's bigger than that. It's a transportation vehicle because they have 10 children. Whoa, 10 children. Ten children right? And man, we love every one of them. I can't tell you how much I enjoy just hanging with their kids. So she is at the grocery store. It's blizzarding as the big van. She comes out and there's a woman riding a bike with um, some groceries. She's trying to hold on to the groceries, bags hanging from the bike. And this woman wipes out in front of her. So Cynthia stops the van, gets out and says, hey, are you okay? And oh yeah, I just live about a block or two away. I got to get over there. And my kids are there. And she goes, hey, can I give you, a, you know, can I, can I pick you up with the bike? Can I take you home? And so uh, Cynthia picks her up and takes her home, but in the process learns her story where well, she had lived in Chicago and where she lived, it was either in the Austin neighborhood or South Chicago, one of those bad neighborhoods here in Chicago. And it was so risky for her and her two, I think it was two children, that she got up and moved to Rochester. She only knew one person and only barely or obliquely. So she gets up and moves to, to Rochester. And here she is. She's living in Section 8 housing. She's got these two kids. She's alone. She knows hardly anybody. And here she is getting groceries to, for her little family. And COVID has, she lost her job at the hotel where she was cleaning rooms. And when I think of entrepreneurship and I think of people taking risks, I look at her and think, oh my goodness. Right. The enormous respect I have for her. When I think of the word moxie, I think of this woman. I never met her. I only have heard the story. She's probably in her early 30s, alone, single. Do you know the exact definition? So the definition of moxie is force of character, determination, or nerve. Yeah, that describes that woman to a T. And it's really what you have to have when you are writing a book. You have to have moxie, determination, nerve, especially if you're putting an idea out there that has never been out there before or might be a little bit controversial yeah gotta have some moxie <laughs> gotta have some moxie I think any idea you put out there has never been out there because you've never put that idea out there you need moxie to get that book out there and to influence others and impact the world with your words absolutely I think that is a great note to end on and so Let's wrap up this episode. I am Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.